I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast today, Maren McKenna. She is a science journalist and distinguished author. Welcome, Maren. Thanks for having me. Of the potential ways to reset the vaccination deployment, what seems to you to be the most useful way that the Biden administration and states can learn from the mishaps of these last months? So the first thing that we have to do, of course, is get more vaccine out into the world, into the country, right? From the start, during December and during January, even with the change in administrations, there were sort of overlapping set of problems. One, the first problem was that not as much vaccine as was anticipated was flowing from the manufacturers to the jurisdictions, primarily the states that were going to be in charge of delivering it into people. And the second was that the states were not able to get organized for a variety of reasons, mostly having to do with not having been supported in the planning they needed to do. They weren't able to get organized with getting vaccine again into recipients. Some of those problems are going to be solved by simply increasing the amount of vaccine that's out there and taking us out of a scarcity situation. Once we have more vaccine, we'll be able to do things like increase the number of vaccination sites and increase the the vaccination sites that are more accessible to people. But I don't think that simply having more vaccine available more vaccine that's uh, you know delivered in places like mall parking lots and stadiums is the entire answer so we're talking about supply and we're also talking about supply of any boosters or updates that would deal with the new variants but in terms of the actual mechanics um, it's not clear if the feds to state apparatus, even if better organized and prepared from the point of view of states and municipalities, is the way that's going to get this done most efficiently. What does your reporting suggest about that? So part of the problem here is that we are effectively making a choice in the way that we deliver vaccine possibly even without really articulating this choice out loud, between getting vaccine into the largest number of people, which would establish herd immunity faster, and getting vaccine into the people who are most at risk. Many of those people who are most at risk are going to have difficulty getting to the sites that will be constructed to get vaccine into the largest number of people. You know, if you don't have a car, whether it's because you live in a city or because you live in a far rural area, having a vaccination site that's accessible only by drive-through or that's at the far end of enormous parking lots is not necessarily going to be as useful as we think it is. And so one of the things that I've been writing about is how can we adopt the models that have been used in other mass vaccination campaigns. The the best example, I think, is the polio campaign that's been going now for 30 years. And behind it, the campaign to, if not eradicate at this point, then at least to suppress, to inoculate against measles. Both of those campaigns have worked really well in the developing world at putting vaccination sites 
and vaccination teams, strike teams, neighborhood teams, in the places where the people are, in societies where many more people are going to be traveling on foot, on bike, on public transit, or in informal transit, rather than having a car of their own. It's quite appealing to me, the idea that there are things that the developing world can teach the industrialized world in terms of how to get as much vaccine out as fast as possible. It seems that pharmacies and integrating the COVID response and vaccination um, into U.S. pharmacies is one of the early advances that the Biden administration is moving towards. Um, With respect to vaccinations in pharmacies, based on the research you did on successful vaccination efforts, do you think that will be helpful? I do think that's going to be important. Now, it happens that I live in Atlanta. Georgia is a state that from sometime in December, I think, has been vaccinating everyone over 65. So it collapsed all of its phase one into a single bucket. There's been no phase 1A, 1B, 1C, or effectively everything has been 1A. And one of the ways they managed that was to empower pharmacy chains within supermarket chains. So uh, in Georgia, and certainly in Atlanta, where I live, um, several large supermarket chains, the Publix supermarket chain and the Ingalls supermarket chain, have been delivering vaccine through their in-store pharmacies. And that's now going to be expanded with other national pharmacy chains that are standalone. There's a couple of things about that that are really great. The first is they're necessarily neighborhood, right? So someone doesn't have to drive 20 miles in order to get to the Mercedes-Benz Stadium downtown, which has itself what seems like 20 miles of parking lot. So it's automatically more accessible to people. Second, pharmacies and supermarkets are distributed in areas across the socioeconomic spectrum. So it's much more likely that people are going to be, that vaccines are going to be geographically available to the people who are more vulnerable by reasons of age, by reasons of race or socioeconomic status, by reasons of neighborhood and their their housing condition, than if a vaccine site is only placed in an affluent suburb or in a place that requires effectively the trappings of affluence to to access it. If you were to look at the successful vaccinations around the world so far, Israel seems to be the leader. Um, you know, what were they able to do that we haven't done? And is that largely related to just the difference in population size? Or are there things that they did that we could have been doing and still can do? So I have to put a caveat here to begin with, which is that we just recently at Wired on our podcast had a discussion of Israel as a successful um, uh, case study in how to deliver vaccination. And one of our listeners carefully pointed out to us that that was true for the Israeli population, but not necessarily true for the Palestinian population, which is only now beginning to get to access vaccines that were coming through the Israeli government. So I think while that situation looks very good, it does need to have an asterisk appended to it. That said, yes, Israel is a small country, 
And therefore, you would think they'd be able to keep more track of people. But what's most important in that situation, I think, and this is true throughout Western Europe as well, is the organization of the healthcare system. We are here in the United States, the largest industrialized economy that does not have a single payer or government directed healthcare system. And what that means, among other things, is that we don't have a single record system. Anyone who's paid any attention to healthcare technology over the past 10 plus years knows that it has been a persistent problem that electronic health records kept by different healthcare systems can't talk to each other, that we have no interoperability, that I can go to a, from you know, for my physician who's hooked into one hospital network and go to a specialist on the other side of town who belongs to another hospital network. And that second physician may not be able to access my records held in the, the, the database to which my original physician belongs. If you have effectively a single payer or government directed healthcare system, you have a healthcare card, you have a unitary record, and it's much easier to track people down, to stratify them by risk, however you're defining risk, whether it's age or socioeconomic status or any one of a number of other categories, and to reach out to them and make sure that they know not just that they're eligible and that the vaccine is there for them, but where they should go to get it. All of the things that people have been struggling with across the United States since December 14th, when we got the first vaccines, in terms of all the stories you hear about people putting themselves on informal waiting lists or people getting up at three o'clock in the morning with four different devices to try to sign into a bunch of dashboards to literally not knowing where the vaccines are. Most of those things are solved if you have a single record keeping system. And to make appointments uh, in many states, it's been a process of mayhem and disorganized. So not only the record keeping from the back end, the front end, to actually enroll and to become vaccinated. Um, you've covered also the science of the vaccination regimens and the uh, question about uh, side effects, the question about efficacy. Um, what are the questions as someone who's reported on this so diligently that you still want to answer about um, one or more of the vaccines, so AstraZeneca, Oxford, Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, what questions do you hope that the science and scientists can be able to answer in the coming months? So I think that one of the questions that is still very much an open question in the United States, and it's an open question here in the United States because it's being taken so seriously in the United Kingdom, is are we going to solve problems of vaccine supply by delaying vaccine doses. Now, in the United Kingdom, they have said for the vaccines that they're using that they're willing to go out to 12 weeks between doses, taking the risk that if they use their vaccine supply to give as many first doses as possible to people, that the manufacturers will fill in the gap and deliver the second doses in time, and that they won't have to hold back some of that first tranche to guarantee second doses for people who've already gotten the first. This has been discussed in the United States. The problem is that for the clinical trials, which let's remember, did not grant, a, they didn't earn a full drug approval, they earned an emergency use authorization, which is a different thing under the FDA. They only had data up to 
21 days between doses for Pfizer and 28 days between doses for the Moderna vaccine. It is reasonable to assume that if you go out longer between doses, that the immunity granted by the first dose is not going to decay. But that is an assumption. It is not something for which we have data because the the trials didn't track it that long. They may be tracking it this long now, but they didn't do that in the data that was submitted for those emergency use authorizations. So we're making a couple of bets when we do that. We're making a bet that there's we're not going to interfere in the process of gathering immunity in the body by lengthening out the doses. And we're making a bet that the manufacturers are going to deliver the subsequent doses in time. That I think is one of the the most pressing questions as we consider this problem of the mismatch of supply and demand. The other is, of course, that other vaccines are coming online now. And um, the the approval of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, for instance, is incredibly exciting because it is a much easier vaccine to store and transport and deliver to people because it doesn't need to be kept at those ultra cold temperatures. And also it's a single dose vaccine. That vaccine could be incredibly important for delivering vaccination in challenging areas such as much of South Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia and South Asia, but also possibly in rural areas of the United States. But it does pose the question of how do we approach people who are in, for instance, in rural areas, let's talk again about, you know, like nursing homes in rural Wyoming or something like that, or on on a Native American reservation out in, in one of the Western states. And how do we approach people and say to them, we're bringing this vaccine to you now. We now have enhanced supply. Oh, but it's less effective than the ones we gave to the rich folk on the coasts. That is a really challenging ethical question. Now, on Monday, Dr. Anthony Fauci spoke remotely to a conference in South Africa that um, was considering the overlap of COVID and HIV, HIV being, of course, a really persistent problem in sub-Saharan Africa. And one of the things that emerged in that conversation, I'm afraid I can't remember now if it was Dr. Fauci or his interlocutor who were speaking at the time, one of the things they said was that you may be able to make up for efficacy, that 66% efficacy in the J&J vaccine, if you increase effectiveness by getting as much vaccine into the population as possible, that that 66% of uh, efficacy might not matter as much if you vaccinate 95% or better of the population. And so that becomes a challenge for the kind of logistics challenges we're talking about, whether those can uphold the the um, the level of protection offered by the vaccine by essentially giving no safe harbor to the virus. What is the scientific explanation for why the efficacy of the J&J is sufficient with one dose? Well, so I am not a virologist. I am a public health person. <laughs> so I've, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to uh, futz here a little bit uh, and say that, you know, these are different vaccine platforms, right? Moderna and Pfizer are, are messenger RNA based vaccines. The J&J vaccine is not. So we really are talking about completely different vaccines that just happen to target the same virus. It makes sense that vaccines that are based on different technology platforms uh, would behave in the body in different ways and would deliver different rates of efficacy um, 
and it happens that that the ones that are that are lower in efficacy have these benefits in terms of being much easier to deliver logistically. So they really are a welcome part of the mix. There are states, and I think among them are Connecticut, New Mexico, the Dakotas, Alaska. It, it, I'm sure it is a growing list, but those are among the states that have been first to vaccinate 10% of their populations. And you would note that a few of them are small states, but not all of them. And there has been a real angst in New York specifically about uh, Governor Cuomo's mismanagement of the rollout and specifically the stringent requirements of eligibility that have been loosened very slowly, but have led to trashed vaccines, uh, literally vials that have been unused and had to go in the garbage. Do you have a sense as to why those states that I mentioned have been successful um, and other states have been less successful? The state that I've heard public health people talk about the most as being successful and, and having had its success analyzed is actually North Dakota. And what I have heard people say has happened in North Dakota more than in other states is that North Dakota has done a really good job of gathering data in advance about its vaccination sites, about the people who can get to its vaccination sites, about what, what the, the needs of and the capabilities of its vaccination sites are. And when I say vaccination sites, I mean a hospital, uh, a community healthcare center, a rural pharmacy, things like that. So they didn't, for instance, send more vaccine out to a place than a place could, uh, could reasonably use based only on a, a calculation of population. What that means really is that, that they went out and they asked the questions and they gathered the data in advance. And the larger lesson there is that this is a question of the last mile. It's going to be a question of the last mile, even the last hundred feet all around the world. All of the big plans that we make for making a vaccine, for shipping a vaccine, for creating big vaccination sites, all of them are going to falter if we're not thinking about the last moments of the encounter of getting the vaccine to the right people. Yeah, that's such a great point. People in, 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 who work in natural disaster response talk all the time about how the last mile is the most important point because the last mile is literally where things happen like the trucks break down right? Or you find that the road is washed out. Well, COVID-19 has been, a, a, it's a worldwide natural disaster. And we ought to be thinking about it, I think, in natural disaster terms and anticipating what's literally at the end of the road, because it's the end of the road that's going to make or break this in the end. Just to follow up on that point, in terms of the North Dakota comparison to New York or Florida or other states, the criticism of Cuomo specifically, is that he strong-armed his own public health agency and infrastructure in disregarding the science and even publicly now saying he doesn't trust scientific expertise. Uh, and as a result, using the hospital systems primarily as the conduit, as opposed to pharmacies, as opposed to you know, individual doctors or individual municipal health centers and communities. Um, is, is there evidence in the states like North Dakota 
I didn't mention this one before, West Virginia is on that list too, Connecticut, New Mexico, that the governors have largely been hands off and the individual city municipal localities have been organizing distribution, whether that be through hospital, pharmacy, grocery store, doctor's offices. Um, I'm trying to get a sense if the successes are, are, are largely using the existing health infrastructure rather than trying to strong arm that uh, by kind of authoritarian fiat. So one of the challenges from the start in the, the, the whole coronavirus response, even before we got to the point of having vaccines, has been the sidelining of the existing public health system. Coupled with vast underinvestment, which is was not only a Trump administration thing, underinvestment and underfunding of the U.S. public health system goes back through the Obama years to at least the financial crisis of 2008 and maybe, maybe before. So that last fall, when states were getting ready to, to file their plans for distributing vaccine with the CDC, states were already saying at that point, we haven't got the money. We haven't got the personnel. The, we haven't got the vaccinators. We haven't got the contact tracers. We haven't got the IT people. We need to build the dashboards that tell us where the vaccine went. It seems to me that in the areas where vaccination has gone well to this point, they are areas where the state public health departments have been allowed to step forward. And you know, this is the thing that was missing in most of last year was the public health system led by the CDC being allowed to step forward and talk about both science and logistics. Now, I haven't reported on New York, but I'm aware that there's a longstanding tension between New York, the city where I was actually born, and New York, the state where the, the health department is, right? So I think we have to allow for the possibility that there have been... Um, hurdles in place of the, in get, getting in the way of the action of the state health department and the city health department that possibly did not exist out in the rest of the country. Marin McKenna, acclaimed science author and journalist reporting on COVID-19 for Wired. Thank you so much for your insight today. Thanks for having me.